we actually did a reset here at Bethel and we unveiled six core values that guide our fellowship as we move forward in the world that we live in today. And we felt that September afforded us a great opportunity to just remember those core values, to reflect upon them, and even recommit ourselves to these core values as we glorify the Lord. Now, I said to you last week that You know, we hear a lot about core values in the world that we live in today. Everyone has core values, but many of us struggle with a definition. How would we actually go about defining core values? And uh, last week I offered you a couple of definitions. One of them came from the business world. The other one came from the fitness world. But I do believe that they cast a little bit of light on this area of core values. For instance, one of those definitions were core values are principles that guide an organization's internal conduct as well as its relationship with the external world. And true, we are to have a relationship with one another as followers of Christ, but we are also to have a relationship with the unbelieving world. But we need some guiding principles that are there. And that's what core values are. They guide us in defining our relationship with one another and defining our relationship with those who have yet to put their faith in Jesus Christ. Another great definition that I came across was this. Core values are about strength and stabilization. They create a stable base for the church, allowing us to stand upright before God so that in standing strong, we might stabilize our backbone, or you could say our courage, our resolve, which controls and improves our posture in a crooked world and provides optimal motion for the daily tasks God has called us to. So the idea of core values, they strengthen us, they stabilize us in a very unstable world. The basic idea of core values is that they are foundational principles, that they are guiding principles, that they keep us anchored in truth as we engage this hostile world that is bent on having us compromise. These core values keep us anchored so that we never lose sight of what is true before the glory and the honor of Almighty God. You know, it is great for a church to have a vision. It is great for a church to have a mission, and we have both. Our vision here at Bethel is loving the Father, living the Word, and embracing the world. And our mission is to grow, which is discipleship, to gather, which is fellowship, to give, which is service, and to glorify, which is to worship. And again, for those of you that may not be familiar with Scripture, in Acts chapter 2, we are told that this was the direct result of the Holy Spirit being poured out in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. We are to grow, gather, give, and glorify. Now, that's our vision, and that's our mission, and it's wonderful to have those. But as I said to you last week, unless you are intimately acquainted with the definitions of each one of those words, it can be a little vague. 
How I define loving the Father may not be how you define loving the Father. How I define living the Word may not be the way you define living the Word. And we all would agree we need to grow in our faith, but how do we actually know we are growing in our faith? What is the standard by which we can measure our growth? And how do we actually accomplish that growth before the Lord? So it's a little vague. That's where core values come in. Core values help us define these things and keep us anchored in reality. And so each week in this series, we're going to be taking one of these core values. We're going to drill down into it a little deeper, and we're going to see why they're so important for our fellowship. And as I said to you last week, our prayer is that throughout this series, you would not only recognize each one of these as core values of Bethel Church, but if you are a partner or you have partnered with us here at Bethel Church, that you would adopt these core values as your own. Because all of us have core values. It's what drives your belief. It's what drives your behavior, your core values. Now, you may have never written them down. You may have never did a core value statement, but... Trust me when I tell you, there are things you value in your heart that are driving the way you think, the way you behave, and even the belief that you hold on to. And what we need to know is that the core values in our heart are godly, that they exalt Christ so that we do not lose sight of what God has called us to do in the earth, in Jesus' mighty name. Now, last week we looked at our first core value, and of course that was biblical authority. Which means that we regard the Bible as the foundation of our faith, believing it is God's inspired word. Which is just to say that even though God used men to write down these documents and these letters and these historical accounts... It was God who was breathing into them His very Word so that you and I would have a reliable and credible account of what God's will is for our lives. And we believe in biblical authority. We submit to the Word of God. Everything we do here at Bethel is always to be in line with the Bible. And if it is not, our our promise to you is to work at it to bring it in line with scripture everything that we do must be built upon the word of a living God and here at Bethel you know that we put a premium on the preaching of the Bible we teach the Bible every Sunday morning we open the Bible every Sunday night in discipleship classes we open the Bible every Wednesday night in Bible study and by the way I just want to remind you that on Wednesday nights right now we're going to be talking about our devotional life and the importance of prayer and reading the word of God and having a stronger more authentic authentic devotional life. We'd love to have you come on Wednesday night. We had a great turnout this past week. We put such emphasis on the Word of God because we believe that it is God's Word. And it is the standard by which all of us will be examined before God one day. You and I are not going to be judged by what we thought was true, by what our opinion of God's truth was. By what we thought was best. 
God is going to judge you and I according to His revealed Word. And that's why we stand up every Sunday and every opportunity that is afforded to us and preach the uncompromised Word of God because all else are liars. God is true. And when you stand before Him one day, you will be judged according to what He has said in Scripture. Folks, we need to submit our lives to the Bible. Can you say amen to that this morning? Amen? Now, today we are going to look at the second of these core values, and this one goes hand in hand with biblical authority. Before I get into this, I want to draw your attention to a very interesting word that uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse number 1. Some of you know this. The Apostle Paul said, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Edifies. Now, I think that that is very interesting because what Paul is basically saying here is that knowledge alone has a tendency to puff us up, to inflate our ego, so to speak. Uh, Paul is saying that if you just accumulate knowledge and continue to accumulate it, and there's nothing beyond that knowledge, it has a way of puffing you up to make you proud. And to make you arrogant. And what is very interesting is that the Apostle Paul was in a very unique position to say that. Because he had learned that firsthand. In fact, many of you know that before the Apostle Paul became a follower of Jesus Christ, he was a Pharisee. He was a student of the Old Testament law. And he knew the Old Testament law better than all of his contemporaries. And when you get to the book of Philippians, you understand that Paul had become so proud, so puffed up in his accumulation of knowledge that he thought it was within his own strength and power to please God. That he could obey God and please God in his own strength. But in that same book, Philippians, he acknowledged that he came to a place of humility, recognizing that in his own strength he would never be able to please God, and that he would have to consider all that he had learned as garbage to know God through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's where he famously said, Oh, to know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Paul said, all that knowledge did was puff me up and make me feel like I could do this on my own. And then he realized that it was only through Christ that he could actually please God. And that's a very important thing for you and I to remember because we tend to believe, because it's in our culture today, that knowledge is power and that is not entirely true. Knowledge can help us make better and more informed choices and decisions, but knowledge in and of itself cannot make you powerful. For instance, every day there are choices made even though it is fully known by those who make those choices and comprehended by them that making those choices may end in their destruction. Isn't it amazing? Every single day there are men and women who know that if they engage in this particular behavior, it is going to wreck their marriage if they are caught, and yet they do it anyway. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Every day, there are men and women who make a decision to go somewhere, even though they know going there may wreck their reputation. Every day, there are men and women who make a decision to eat things that they know over a long period of time are going to cause them health crisis in the future, but they eat it anyway. Can I hear an amen? Do you understand what I'm saying? You can know what is right, You can know what is wrong, but that doesn't mean you're going to behave accordingly. Every one of us in this room have made decisions in the past. Some of you are making decisions right now that you know if anyone finds out, if you're ever caught, eventually it's going to catch up to you and it could wreck your marriage, it could wreck your family, it could wreck your reputation, your walk with God, and yet you are going to do it anyway. James saw it this way. In the book of James chapter number 1 and verse number 22, he says famously, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. He says if all you are is a hearer of the word, but you never do it, you're deceiving yourself. You're not a believer. Thank you for that great amen today. I didn't say that. Your Bible said that. James says, if all you do is hear the word and never put it into action, you're deceiving yourself if you believe that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. He would go on from here and he would make it very clear that the one who hears the word but never does it, never obeys it, is likened to the one who looks in a mirror, sees a blemish on their faith, and said, man, I really need to deal with that, and then just walks away and never deals with it. He says it's the same way when you open up the Word of God and God exposes an area in your life that needs to change and you say, wow, I really need to deal with that, but you never deal with it. He says you're deceiving yourself. That knowledge is puffing you up. It's filling you with pride, but it is not causing you to overcome in your heart and your life. He would go on in chapter 2 and verse 19 and say this, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He says, listen, don't brag about the fact that you know all the essential truths of Christian faith. If you don't put that faith into action and obey what God is saying to you, then your faith is dead. It is inoperable. It doesn't do anything for you. And so what he's making very clear here is that you can accumulate great knowledge, but that knowledge does not give you power because that involves your will and something has to go on there. So yes, we believe in biblical authority without a doubt, but increasing your knowledge isn't making you live any better. It's not helping you live more effectively. You know, I remember one time years ago, there was someone in my house, I had some guys over, we were just studying Proverbs, our Proverbs group, and somebody just said, you know, I'm thankful that I can read the Proverbs, and by reading the Proverbs, I can become more wise. And they said, please do not believe that by reading Proverbs, you're becoming wise. There is such thing as an old fool. Come on, can can you say Amen. Just because you read the Bible doesn't mean you're coming closer to the Lord. Because it's not about the knowledge. It is about putting that knowledge into practice. So what happens is for a believer, 
What we need is power. What we need is desire within our heart. We need such a radical, radical reorientation of our life that literally there is not only a desire to live a godly life and a desire to raise our hands and worship God and a desire to witness to our friends and our loved ones, but there's actually power available to do it in Jesus' name. And that leads us to the second of our core values here at Bethel Church, and that is Holy Spirit empowerment. Believing that what God requires of each of us is impossible in human strength, we rely exclusively on the power that is provided by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Apart from Him, nothing is possible. But with Him, all things are possible. Our core value here at Bethel is Holy Spirit empowerment. God's Word provides for us what God requires from us, the lives that we are to live before Him, the attitude that we are to possess, and also the very motive that is to be driving everything we do. Now think about that. God has revealed in this Word everything that He requires from us. He's revealed in this Word how we are to live before Him. He has shown us in this word the very motive that is in our heart, the very attitude that we are to possess. And I'm thankful that God has not left me stranded on this desert planet without any kind of direction. He has shown me the way to Him. But have you read your Bible lately? Because whenever I read the Bible, the one thing I see is that living for Christ isn't difficult, it isn't hard, it is impossible. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, it is impossible. When I read the Bible, I say, I can't live like this. I can't love someone like this. I can't love my enemies like that. I can't forgive like that. I can't give like that. I can't have that kind of an attitude. I look at the Word of God and I think, this is not hard. It is impossible. We cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit in our own strength. That's the bad news. But the good news is that 2,000 years ago, God poured out His Spirit on 120 believers in Jerusalem so that the Holy Spirit could come and dwell in every believer to provide the strength that is necessary to accomplish it thus apart from him we can do nothing but with him all things are possible in Jesus name can you give him praise for that this morning And I'm going to stand here today and tell you as unashamed as we are about our belief in the authority of Scripture, we are equally unashamed about our belief that those same Scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit has come to live within the believer who has truly surrendered their life to Christ to not only empower him for communion and fellowship with God, but also to live their lives in a way that pleases him. We need the Holy Spirit. End of discussion. Come on. Do you believe that today? We need that intimacy with Him. The Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. He's not some impersonal power or energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is God. We believe in one sovereign God in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Father is the primary one speaking to His followers in the Old Testament. 
The Son, Jesus, was the one that was with His disciples in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But when you come to the book of Acts, and even continuing to 2017, it is the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of the believer. He walks with us. He talks with us. He leads us in the way that we are to go. It is the Holy Spirit, and apart from Him, we can do nothing at all. The Holy Spirit is our spiritual life. The Holy Spirit is to our spiritual lives what the Creator is to the physical world. Without God the Creator, the physical world would not exist. Without His continuous sustaining, upholding, and preserving power, the world would crash out of existence. In the same manner, without the Holy Spirit, we would not exist as the sons and the daughters of the Most High God. Because it is through the Holy Spirit that we are new creations in Christ. And it is through the Holy Spirit that He continuously sustains us, upholds us, preserves us, and without Him we would crash out of His presence. I'm going to tell you the reason I am here today at 50 years old it's because when I was a young man I was filled by the power of the Holy Spirit he has kept me he has preserved me he has upheld me in every storm without him we're nothing but with him all things are possible can you give him praise and I'm going to stand before you today and tell you that we desire to move into a place here at Bethel where nothing, nothing, nothing we do is done in our own strength and ability, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And there are some people that would say, well, Pastor Curry, we understand why you need to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what you do. But certainly we don't have to be anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what we do. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I don't care what you do in this church. I don't care what you do in your private life. You can't do it the way God wants you to do it without the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter whether you're preaching a sermon, whether you're singing a song, playing a guitar, controlling the sound, running the multimedia, whether you're ushering, whether you're greeting, whether you are checking kids in for children's church or teaching them. It doesn't matter whether you work in our food bank. It doesn't matter if you are a janitor in the house of God, whatever you do, you can't do in your own strength, in your own ability, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you can do it. Listen, I've been speaking in contests and things since I was a young man. I've always been up on a stage singing or doing something. I'm not saying that I don't have a talent to do what I do. But I learned a long time ago that if I do it in my own strength, I may be able to tickle your emotions, but it is the Spirit of God that changes your heart in Jesus' name. And if we want to just tickle emotions of men, we can do it in our own ability. But if you want to touch the heart of men and women and see them change, it's not by might, it's not by power, it is by the Spirit of the living God Almighty. Can somebody give God the praise? If you believe that. Come on, folks. The church is not to be an entertainment center where we work you up emotionally. We were meant to be a spiritual hospital where lives are changed and transformed. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit of God that it is done. You know, it's really interesting is that there is a, a really unique connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but we're introduced to it right at the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse number 1, we read this. 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. First time we're introduced to the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now stay with me for a moment. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did he create the heavens and the earth? We find the Holy Spirit hovering, brooding, it means the same thing, hovering over the face of the deep, okay? And God said, let there be light. Now God is a spirit, and his word is spirit as well. But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit quickened that spiritual word and brought it into the physical. So there's a very unique connection between the Word of God and the Spirit of God because it takes the Spirit of God to bring the spiritual Word of God into the physical world. We even sung about it today, that we want your kingdom to come, heaven touching earth. The only way that God's spiritual will can be done here on the physical world is through the Holy Spirit. Now, what is interesting, if you think this through, is that we know from John chapter 1 that the word God spoke when the earth came into existence, the universe came into existence, was none other than the eternal Son of God, um, Christ. We know that. Because in John chapter number 1 and verse number 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that the Word God the Father spoke was really His eternal Son. Here's the amazing thing. In verse 14 of John 1, it says that one day the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten, the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is the, the body that the eternal Son of God lived in. How did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? That's the question that we have to ask. How did the eternal Spirit uh, of Christ become flesh and dwell among us. Mary asked the same question in Luke chapter 1 and verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Did you hear it? The Holy Spirit, he said, is going to hover over your virgin womb. And when the Father says the Word, the Holy Spirit is going to quicken the Word to perform it. And the Word is going to become flesh and dwell among you. You see, folks, you've got to understand that. Because when we read the Word of God, the Bible says that the words that He speaks are spirit. And the only way that these words can never be fleshed out in our lives is not by might, not by power, but by the Holy Spirit. So when I'm reading the Bible, I need to just lift up my head and say, God, I can't do this without you. Holy Spirit, come. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, the words are no longer spirit. They become life within me. And I flesh it out day by day, not by my might, not by my power, but by the Spirit of the living God Almighty. Can you say amen? That's why we need the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want to do in our closing moments here. Last week, I looked at biblical authority through the eyes of Paul. And we're going to go back to Paul again today to look at 
the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer. This is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to give you what Paul talked about in Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there, you can go with me quickly to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul really spends a great deal of time talking about the activity of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. And what's interesting is that if you look at chapter 7, he talks about his frustration in trying to live the right way without the Holy Spirit. When he comes to chapter 8, he says this is what the Holy Spirit will do in the life of the believer. Number one, the Holy Spirit frees us. The Holy Spirit frees us. Look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The Holy Spirit frees us from the law of sin and death and brings to us the law of the Spirit, which is life in Christ Jesus. Let me see if I can help you understand what that means. The Bible makes it very clear that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All that means is that we have violated God's law. We have transgressed God's law because it was already written in our heart. God gave us a conscience to bear witness when we have done the will of God, when we have not done the will of God, and our conscience is guilty because we know that we have violated the law of God. And we have fallen short of giving God the glory. That's what it means. We were meant to glorify God in our bodies by living submitted to Him. But we have turned our own way and lived selfishly. So we have all sinned against God. And the law reveals that we have not only sinned against Him, but we stand condemned in our sin. Basically, we are all on death row awaiting eternal judgment, separation from God, which is the punishment for violating the laws of Almighty God. So we are imprisoned, awaiting our execution, awaiting eternal death. But the good news is, is that 2,000 years ago, your Savior, Jesus Christ, came to this earth, lived a sinless life, offered His life as a substitute for your penalty and for my penalty. And now if we will confess our sin, and forsake them. He'll forgive us of all of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But that was just the first installment. Because then, after He rose from the dead, 40 days later, He sent the Holy Spirit upon us, who, the Bible says, has now freed us from the law of sin and death and has now given us life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to tell you, my friend, no longer are we under the condemnation of the law. Not only have we been forgiven, Given of all that we have been, uh, that we have done against God, but also we have been freed from the very bondage of sin so that we are no longer its prisoner, but we are free because He who the Son sets free and the Holy Spirit is free indeed. In Jesus' name. Can you give God the praise for that? I love what 
Jesus said at the very beginning of his ministry. In Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, he's quoting Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. I didn't put it down, but Acts 10 and verse 38 says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. I'm going to tell you, there is no reason for you to live under condemnation any longer. There is no reason for you to live shackled to sin any longer because Jesus Christ has given you the Spirit to set you free from it. And I don't care what you've come in today having done. You can leave here not only forgiven, but even being freed from that bondage and live victoriously in Jesus' mighty name. Can you give God the praise for that? He frees us. Secondly, He transforms us. He transforms us. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Now I wish I had about an hour just to break down those verses, but I'm going to go quickly through it. The Holy Spirit here is seen as one who is radically transforming our life. Listen, when we come to Christ, we do not need a remodeling job. (laughs) We need a complete transformation. We need the old to be torn down to the extent that it can never come back again. Like, literally, we need the old to pass away and for everything to become brand new. You have to see yourself even as Paul did. Paul said, it is no longer I that lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. Paul said, the transformation that has occurred in my life is so radical that it's no longer I that lives, it's Christ that lives inside of me. That is the transformation that we need. Now, the law could not do that. He says right there, for what the law could not do in that it was weak. The law could not transform us. Because the law was never given to transform lives. The law was just there to show that we're guilty. The law was just there to show us that we had sinned against God. So if you just look at the law, all that it says is you're guilty, but it offers you absolutely no way to be transformed. But when the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit came not only, again, so that we could be set free from the through the shackles of sin, but that we could be radically transformed. And how radical? He says it right here. He says... That I will radically transform you and giving you a new way to walk, being led by the Holy Spirit, and a new way of thinking to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit can actually train you to think the way that God thinks. In, how many of you want that kind of mind? To actually be able to know the mind of God. 
through the Holy Spirit. And this is right in keeping with what he had promised in Ezekiel when he said, I'm going to give you a new heart or a new will and a new mind, a new way of thinking, so that you will be able to do what I have commanded you to do this day. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the Bible is powerful. But as wonderful as it is, it provides revelation but not power. We need the Word of God to reveal for us what God wants, but the Bible cannot empower us to do it. But the Holy Spirit does. And this is why Jesus said to His disciples, even after His resurrection, don't talk to anybody, don't witness to anybody, don't preach to anyone. You go right back to Jerusalem, you go into that upper room, and you wait there until you are clothed with power from on high. Did they not know what to do? No, no, no. They had spent the last three and a half years with the Word of God. But they didn't have power. But once they received power from on high, they turned Jerusalem and the ends of the earth upside down. Folks, our problem today is we don't know enough. The problem is we don't have the power. We need to get alone with God and wait until power from on high comes and we are quickened out of our lethargy and we become men and women of God in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, somebody give God the praise for it, if you believe it. Hallelujah. Next, He empowers us. He empowers us. I love this. Verse 11, He says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Sometimes people think that He's talking about resurrection here. He is not talking about resurrection here unless it's the resurrection of Christ. It is clear in this context that he's talking about the life we live now. And what he's saying is the same spirit that raised Christ out of death into a new and glorified body is the same spirit who will come upon you to walk in the newness of life. That even as you live now, you do not live as you used to. You live now in submission to Almighty God. I love this. When God first formed man in the garden, it wasn't until he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life that man became a living being. And the same thing happens when you are truly born again. Not a religious experience where you came down and said a prayer that a pastor told you to pray. But rather when you've truly repented of your sin. When you've truly confessed it and forsaken it. And said, Lord, I want to live for your glory and for your honor alone. God then breathes into you the spirit that raised Christ from the dead. And you become a living being. You will never know life until you know the power of the Holy Spirit of God abiding in you. In Jesus' mighty name. Next, he confirms for us. He confirms for us that we are the children of God. Verse 14, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. I love that. Don't miss what he's saying here. He's saying that the true sons of God are those who are led by the Spirit of God. So if you're not led by the Spirit of God, you are not a son or a daughter of God. Not my words, his words. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Aren't you glad that in those hours when you feel all alone, 
that the Holy Spirit will come to you and confirm to you that you are a child of God. That He is with you. That you don't have to live your life in bondage to fear. But you can instead be filled with the spirit of adoption who, who compels you to say, Abba, Father, and He is there. You know, I was thinking about a way to illustrate that. And I, I was actually drawn to what it says again at the beginning. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It is being led by the Spirit of God that demonstrates our adoption. And I got thinking, you know, and I know that this is not everyone's testimony. And I know that some of you cannot relate to my story. I realize that. But that doesn't make the story any less valid. And the point or the illustration less valid. When I was growing up, I don't remember having a lot of fear in my life. I don't remember having a lot of panic. I didn't have a lot to worry about. I just was always in a state of peace. And I'm not saying that, you know, I didn't go through my trials as a teenager and things. But while I was growing up, I don't remember fear. I don't remember panic. I don't remember ever going to bed with any worry. And as I look back now and I think, why is that? I can tell you that the reason is because I had a mother and a father that genuinely loved me and was concerned about my life. And I had come to a place where I was fully convinced That even when they counseled me, and even when they commanded me, and even when they disciplined me, and I didn't agree with their counsel, and I didn't agree with what they were saying, I still knew that they had my best interests in heart. I knew that they were not doing it to satisfy some kind of, you know, sick thing inside of their heart, like they wanted to keep me from having fun. I knew that they genuinely cared about my life. And so even if I disagreed with them, there was this sense that they were for me, not against me. And as long as I would follow their lead, as long as I would submit to their counsel, then I was in a place where I knew that even if it was difficult, that they were going to see me through those days. And I knew that mom and dad were going to be there. I didn't have any reason to fear. You know, the only time that I was ever afraid is when I was in a state of disobedience. The only time I ever got nervous was when I put my will ahead of theirs. And I got into disobedience. And in that disobedience, it was there that I began to fear because I didn't know if I could trust my path and I didn't know what they would feel if I ever got caught. It was then that fear came into my heart. There was no bondage to fear as long as I was in the will of my parents. Fear only came when I was outside of their will. And I'm going to tell you, if it works on a physical realm, then it works in the spiritual realm as well. As long as you are being led by the Spirit of God, as long as your decisions are being led by God, you have no reason to fear. God is with you. His plan is working. You may not agree with it. You may not understand it. But if you humble yourself and say, God, I please you, then God will see you through it all. You don't have to be in bondage to fear, but you can have life in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen to that? He confirms for us. And then finally, He intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8 and verse 26 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. 
Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, I've told you in the past, I love that verse, but sometimes the translations we use don't always give us the best picture. And sometimes it's hard to understand what he's saying. And that's why we have other translations that maybe clarify it. Listen to how it reads in the New Living Translation. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. Can you turn to your neighbor and tell them that? We do not know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. Boy, I love that. No truer words were ever spoken. We don't know what God wants us to pray for. The sheer arrogance of thinking we know how we should pray. And what happens, most of us, we just go to the Bible and we find the verse that supports what we want to happen. And then we say, God, you promised, as if you had to remind him of his promises, that you would do this and you have to. That isn't how the Bible's laid out, folks. It wasn't there for you to manipulate God in any way. The reality is there is no way that you and I can know what God wants us to pray for because we don't know what God knows. Some of you didn't know that. (laughs) How many of you think God knows some things you don't know? Okay. He sees things you don't see. He sees how answering your prayer would actually hurt somebody else's prayer. See, you're only considering your life. (laughs) But you've never considered how if he were to answer your prayer the way you want him to pray, how that would affect many people exponentially. Because what might be good for you may harm somebody else. Are you willing to sacrifice what you want to be a blessing to someone else? You and I don't know how to pray. But the good news is the Holy Spirit knows the will of God. And with groanings that cannot be uttered, we can allow the Holy Spirit to pray through us. And we know when He is praying through us that what He is praying is in harmony, is in keeping with God's own will. And it's hard because we want our will to be done, let's be honest. And that's why we don't go to the Lord and say, Father, show me how I should pray. We just go and say, Lord, this is what I need. Because we want our will to be done instead of surrendering to God's will. That's why the Holy Spirit came. Folks, we have got to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And I was thinking about this the other day. Listen, the Holy Spirit didn't come so that we could have wild services. You know, like, I think some people think that that the services always have to be bouncing and jubilant and that the decibel level will determine the anointing that was here today. That's not the way it is. The Holy Spirit did not come so that we would have wild services, though I'm not opposed to some great services from time to time. The Holy Spirit came 
so that you would know God intimately. And that when you wake up every morning, there would be a sense that He is leading you and you are following. That you are walking in the Spirit. That you're setting your mind upon the Spirit and living for Him and for His glory alone. And we need the Holy Spirit. Not just here, but you need Him in your life. Some of you are facing some difficulties in your marriage, in your family, at work, and you're trying to figure it all out. Why don't you let the Holy Spirit lead you? Why don't you let Him direct you? You say, Pastor, I don't know if you have the Holy Spirit. If that's what you feel, I know you don't. (laughs) Because if you have the Holy Spirit, you'll know it. (laughs) Because there'll just be no denying that there is someone living in you that's guiding you, strengthening you for the journey ahead. We need Him. Every hour, we need Him. In Jesus' name. Would you just stand to your feet here this morning? You know, I, I know...